Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. Oh, hey, stop that. That's kind of you. Really, I appreciate it. Thanks. As you may know, my name is Paul Ollinger, your host, and today is a great day to be alive. I hope you're filling it with all sorts of positive energy activities and people, spending a little time with friends. Today, we're spending time with a new friend, a friend of mine and a friend of the podcast, Ms. Bobby Rebel. We're going to jump in right, right into our interview today, okay? Bobby Rebel, ladies and gentlemen, is an award-winning... I sound like I'm trying to sell you a car. I'm going to step back on the energy for just a second. Okay. Bobby Rebel is an award-winning TV anchor and personal finance columnist, most recently at Thomson Reuters, the largest news organization in the world. She's the host of the Financial Grown-Up Podcast and co-host of the Money with Friends Podcast. Her Reuters column on personal finance was syndicated in newspapers and websites worldwide. Before that, she was a reporter with PBS's nightly business report and held various producer positions at CNN and CNBC. Bobby is the author of the best-selling self-help personal finance book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, Proven Advice from High Achievers on How to Live Your Dreams and Have Financial Freedom. The book combines unique personal financial stories from inspirational leaders and high-profile people, including Tony Robbins, Jim Cramer, Drew Barrymore, and many more. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, Bobby has a certificate in financial planning from New York University. She lives in the city, that is in New York City, with her husband, three kids, and her Morky waffles. Morky is a dog, just FYI. It's a very small dog. Bobby and I spoke in her office in New York City about her podcasts, her career in financial journalism, balancing work and family, and guiding kids into financial grown-upness, which is the topic of her next book. Please welcome Bobby Rebel. Oh, there you go. Aren't they nice, Bobby? Aren't they? They're so nice here. This is actually great advice for your younger listeners. I did overnights because there were a lot of interns. It wasn't paid. So when you don't have to pay the interns, you don't necessarily limit the number of interns. And in order to actually get experience, which is all you're there for, it was a fight. You're always looking for somebody to take you under their wing and give you work. And I just got a lot of experience because when you're in an empty newsroom, at three in the morning, shockingly, people will give you things to do. <laughs> Amazing. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. All right, Bobby Rebel, thank you for joining us here on Crazy Money. Where do you come from? Well, technically, Paul, I was born right here in New York City where we're taping this interview, but I really in grew up- In this conference room? Not in, in this conference room. In luminary offices? In the luminary, yes, we're taping. We'll explain that in a minute. But I was born in New York City, but for economic purposes, my parents moved our family to New Jersey. So I'm really a Jersey girl. Is there any other reason to move to New Jersey? I mean- It's a beautiful place. It's a gar- <laughs> New Jersey is the garden state. Okay, so you moved to New Jersey. What was going on in New Jersey as you were a kid? What mom and dad do? I had a blissful childhood growing up in New Jersey, uh-huh. Paul. Which My, part of New Jersey were you in? I was in northern New Jersey in Bergen County. Uh-huh. Yes. My parents raised myself and my little sister and little brother in, as I said, Bergen County, New Jersey. My mom, for the first part of my life, was a stay-at-home mom. Although she really wasn't home a lot. She always worked a lot, just not for money, which we'll get to in a minute. Of course. And my dad worked on Wall Street, is the short story. Had lots of long commutes to New York, mm-hmm. which is part of why I chose to live in New York City, because I did not want that commute. And my mom, by the time my brother entered kindergarten had decided that if she was going to work so hard as a volunteer, she should get paid. And she went to law school. Oh, no kidding. And she took the LSAT. Really? To go to law school. Why did she go to law school? How old was she when she took that test? I'm going to guess. So my brother was in kindergarten. So I'm going to guess she was in her mid thirties. probably. Yeah. Which at the time was really unheard of. It was very cutting edge for a woman that age to start going to law school with three kids at home. Although she had help. Where did she go to law school? She went to Seton Hall. Oh, wow. Cool. Good basketball program also. Yeah, she was attracted to that as well. Sure. That was part of it. (laughs) What's the most important part of your law school, uh, your basketball team? Okay, so did she practice? She did. She did not have a, quote, big career. She worked Mm. for small businesses, small um, boutique law firms. And then she did eventually, I'm very proud of her, she worked for the uh, Bergen County for the 
I believe it's called the Mental Health Law Project. And basically what she did is she helped people that were mentally disabled in some way and needed help. And it's really their families that she was helping effectively to get the benefits that they were entitled to. So she was an advocate for mentally challenged people and their families. And so I'm very proud of the work that she did. And also she got paid as opposed to nice. just being a volunteer. So mom was a purpose-driven professional, obviously very motivated and smart. Yes. And dad was big time on Wall Street? Well, not initially. He worked very hard. He actually started as a lawyer. Oh, there yeah? There you go. Harvard Law Degree, mm -hmm. gone to waste. There you go. <laughs> what better use of it? He practiced, he practiced law for a few years, but he started getting involved in these deals, and he noticed that the investment bankers on the other side of the worked table of these smart. deals- smart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so lawyers get paid by the hour. Right. And- bankers get paid by the deal. Sure. So this occurred to him that he should be on the other side of the table. And so he did switch and he eventually moved from being a lawyer to practicing, although he didn't get an MBA like you, mm. he did eventually become an investment banker. And by the time I was a teenager, I think that was, I don't know his finances exactly, mm -hmm. but it seems like he did pretty well. It was pretty lucrative. We yeah. moved to a bigger house. He bought a fancy car, right. all the things. What did you learn about money from your parents? Oh, it's a lot of work. They work really hard. Money, oh, honestly. making money is a lot of work. Making money is work. And my father was very firm with all of his children that we had to be focused. We were expected to earn our own money. Mm -hmm. Not that he's not supportive in different ways. You know, certainly if it takes, he'll pay for dinner if we go to dinner and other things. But in terms of our careers, we had a very high bar and we were all expected to be high achievers. And I'm still trying to get his approval. I don't know if he'll hear this, but I'm working at it. <laughs> I'll know. send it to him. Yeah, we're, we're working towards getting his approval. You're but, still um, trying to get your dad's approval. I really approval. am. I really am. Yeah. Really? How does that, like, consciously you think of that? Absolutely. Really? It makes me really happy. He, I know that he's listened to the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I know that at this point, three years out, I know he read the book. I know well, that. I, I hope so. Yeah. My dad read my book and he was like, I just don't understand why you've got to have all this profanity in there. I don't think my book had profanity. I don't think so. Some yeah. people thought it had profanity. We'll get to mm. that. We'll okay. get to that. So you're still trying to, you're still trying to. <laughs> well, I'll, well, let me tell you. So this is why I left a key part out. He had very much wanted me to follow in his footsteps and work on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And that is why I'm in business news. So that's always been a bit of a disappointment because I took an internship at CNN Business News rather than local news when I wanted to go into news because that was a condition for my father to support me that summer. At the time, Internships were not paid. There's been some progress on that, but it was an unpaid internship at CNN when I was in college. And the only way he would allow that, meaning financially support that, is if I did business news so that when I came to my senses, I would follow in his footsteps and work on Wall Street. Got it. Thus the disappointment. As opposed to wasting your time in political news. Okay, let's go back to high school. You're still trying to impress your dad today. So I yes. assume that you were a very good student in high school. Yes. To win mom and dad's approval, specifically dad's approval. Absolutely. Oh. I tried my best. And I did. I went to a fancy college, not as fancy. Well, I, I was equally as fancy as you. No, your college is more fancy than mine. You went to Penn, right? I did go to Penn, which is, by the way, where he went. Are you following here? Okay, right. I got into another college that had a journalism program that I mm. really wanted to go to. Which school was that? Should I say? Northwestern? I didn't go. Yes. Uh -huh. And I got into the journalism school there and mm. I really wanted to go. Evanston's, but because I would eventually see the light and go work on Wall Street, it was clearly better. Evanston's, the family decided for me to go to Penn. Right. Evanston's not pretty. Don't worry. West <laughs> Philly is lots prettier than Evanston, Illinois. You knew in high school that you wanted to be a journalist. Yes. I always wanted to be a journalist. And I was writing even then for the local paper. I wrote a little column, things like that. What was it called? I don't remember. It was like... It was like Dear high school Bobby. events. No, no, no. It was like Bobby's little, little, little news happening. Mm. Little news happening. It was not a big endeavor. So you go to Penn. What do you do to learn journalism and not major in journalism at Penn? So I majored in communications, which mm -hmm. was the closest major that they had. Right. And I did a lot of TV there. And really, the truth is, internships, internships matter. Yeah. Penn is just, it's a wonderful liberal arts college. I was in the mainstream college. I did not get into Wharton, again, to my father's disappointment. Oh. But the college is great. I had a great experience there. Annenberg School of Communications is second to none, I would say. Biased, but still. Sure. And so I did get a great education on the general themes of communication. But in terms of practical learning, it was really internships. And I was an intern at NBC for the local and... I couldn't get into the newsroom, actually. I, so I took, just to get in the building, I took one in the advertising and promotions department. Nothing wrong with selling ads. Just wanted to get there, got in the building, 
still on my resume. And then I did get CNN Business News the following summer, which was a fantastic experience. What did you do during that summer? Well, this is actually great advice for your younger listeners. I did overnights because there were a lot of internship interns. It wasn't paid. So when you don't have to pay the interns, you don't necessarily limit the number of interns. Right. So there were many interns. And in order to actually get experience, which is all you're there for. Sure. It was a fight. You're always looking for somebody to take you under their wing and give you work. Well, that's perfect preparation for on-air experience as a professional, full-time. Well, yeah. In the business. So I decided that I would go on overnights and CNN agreed to pay for the car to get mm -hmm. me there because it's not really safe. Mm -hmm. And I did, by the way, have an apartment subsidized by dad in mm -hmm. New York City that summer. So it was not very difficult. And going on overnights, there was this producer there who was so kind to me. Her name was Maria. Some people might have heard of her, Maria Bartiromo. Oh, yeah. She was there producing overnight right. for the 6 a.m. show. This is before she hit it big? Way before. Mm. This is, she might have been one year out of college and I was still in oh, college. Wow. And she let me actually write words that I wrote, Paul, were said by the anchors nice. of CNN. That, to this day, is such a career high. Yeah. The fact that words I wrote were said by the anchors. So mm. I got real scripts. So when I left there, I had real things to show to potential employers, which was awesome. And I just got a lot of experience because when you're in an empty newsroom at three in the morning, shockingly, people will give you things to do. <laughs> Amazing. The editor of Glamour, Samantha Berry, was on the program a few weeks ago, and she talked about that very thing. She did overnights for for radio and then covering the science fair for, I believe, the local TV station. She was like, that's where she learned. That's how she got the authority to make mistakes. And surprisingly, she said some people were listening at three o'clock in the morning. Well, the show was on at 6 a.m. and I made a lot of mistakes, which we can talk about. They sent me to school. <laughs> they so, sent me to financial education school after that. <laughs> where did you go to school? I took a bunch of financial literacy courses. I think the place is no longer around, but it was, you know, courses in New York City that taught you. I took a whole course on how the Fed worked. Mm. I took a whole course on how technical analysis worked because when you don't understand those things, it's very hard to write about them in simplified terms. You right. kind of have to know the complicated stuff to write the simplified stuff. Sure. And I was getting the bond stuff wrong a lot. That mm -hmm. whole inverse relationship, we're going to nerd out here, guys. The whole inverse relationship between bond yields and prices. Ooh, I can't remember that. I know, I know. It's very complicated. And I was having a hard time and I kept writing it incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And the more senior people there were starting to lose patience. So they said, if I wanted to come back and work for them after graduation, I had to learn it. I can hear the passion in your voice for financial journalism. Did you consider at all making a living or income as you were choosing this as a career? I did because I learned that it paid more than local news or fashion or entertainment. Mm -hmm. And that also with financial journalism versus other kinds, the salaries are simply much higher. Right. There's a lot of jobs that have full benefits. My first job at CNBC, which we're fast forwarding a little bit, but my first job out of college at CNBC was a full benefits on staff job, which is right. not typical in a lot of journalism. So within journalism, the niche that really was going to provide me with the best economic future was going to be this. I did not anticipate working in it more than a couple of years though. I can't wait to get benefits again. Mm. I miss my benefits. That premium I'm paying to the uh, health insurance company is not exactly super fun to pay. This is where we get sad. Okay, so you go to CNN. <laughs> As an intern As a, in college. Okay, but coming out of school, sorry, coming out of school, where was that first job again? Oh, the first job was CNBC. CNBC. So CNN was not hiring at the moment. Okay. Um, they did eventually hire me away from CNBC, but mm -hmm. initially I got the job at CNBC basically through a lot of tenacity, let's say. I managed to find somebody who finally was willing to give me an introduction mm -hmm. and was hired there. And that was my first full-time on-staff job. And I was lucky. It happened by August after graduation. That's amazing. My dad was very worried. <laughs> that summer, he was not happy. Were you living at home? Because it was still was, over course, in yeah. uh, Jersey. I was right? living in Jersey, yeah. And CNBC, by the way, is in New Jersey. Right. So that worked out really well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you go to work. How long does it take you to get on the air? Oh, I got on the air at age 27, but it was two jobs forward at the nightly business report. How did you break your way into being on air? Was that always your goal? That was always sort of a secret goal. I think that people can sometimes push those goals back because they don't seem realistic. And a lot of people discourage you and say that you have to go to small markets to do it. You can't just get on air in New York City. So it was a goal, but medium goal. What really drove me was there was a day at CNBC when a friend of mine told me that she overheard a anchor 
that I had written the full show for. It was a, a technology show that there was a sponsor for, and I knew he got bonuses just for being on the show, and he just read the script. Right. That's all he did. He just came in, read the script, and left, and I did all the work behind the scenes. And she told me how he would be on the phone telling them how hard he worked on, making it very clear <laughs> that he did all the work, taking credit for all of my work. And to be honest with you, that is what drove me to be on air, is that I realized that for me, and there's amazing producers out there, but for me, I wanted credit for my work, and it really bothered me when... I would do all the work and someone just came in and read the teleprompter and actively took all the credit. And right. many on-air people are so gracious and absolutely credit their team, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Sure. The second thing is job security because as precarious as it can be to be on camera, at the end of the day, you are a human. And right. we now have robots writing news. Did you know that, Paul? Uh, yes. Even my former employer Reuters, I think, employs some robots that can write, if you have a corporate earnings report, mm -hmm. they know how to scan it. And there can be entire stories written by robots now. Yeah, That's they, crazy. They test different titles for clickability and headlines for clickability and all that kind of stuff. It's nuts. It's nuts. How does that make you feel about journalism as, as, a, as a career? Is that something you could still encourage people to go into? That was an on-purpose awkward pause. I think it's tricky. I think that it is not what it used to be. I think it's very hard to make a living mm -hmm. and have an on-staff job that pays a good... I had a six-figure wage pretty much within not that long. Right. It was certainly well before I was 30. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much that exists anymore because the gig economy has really evolved. Mm -hmm. I think because the value of content with the emergence of the internet has evolved and I think there's been a real rise. But by evolved, you mean plummeted. Plummeted. I'm trying to be gracious here. But the economics are not what they used to be. And the whole magazine industry, for example, effectively doesn't exist mm. the way it used to. I mean, that right. used to be a very lavish, big budget, behind the scenes, wine and dine industry. Sure and was. that is no more. Right. When I was selling internet ads in you know, 2001 you know, and moved to LA, I remember feeling like a second class citizen to TV, film, and, and print people who were the big dogs, but the smart people in print were going, this gravy train isn't going to last. I've got to go get some digital chops. Mm -hmm. And now of course the, that card is inverted. I want to hear more about your career and then we'll talk about some career transitions and how you manage it for the long run. So what were some of the highlights of your career? Before I left traditional Before, journalism. Yeah, while you're, while you're in financial journalism, you work at CNBC nightly business report. And where did you go from there? And then from there, I went to Reuters, which mm -hmm. was great because Reuters is the biggest news service in the world, I believe still. Mm -hmm. It was at the time. So that was a big prestige global brand. And to be part of that was very special. And they also, to be candid, they have huge news integrity that I really respect. And I was very proud and continue to be proud of my experience with them. I think there's a lot of really smart people and it has a global tone. And it was very exciting. And that was the first time I'd been hired where I'd already been on air. Mm -hmm. So when someone gives you a big break and you're on air at Nightly Business Report, there's still this tinge of, well, we hired her as a producer with the agreement to put her on the air. Mm -hmm. And they paid for all this coaching, which was all great. But I was still sort of the little kid, the newcomer. When you're hired already on air, there was a prestige factor that they hired you away and you're already ready to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, you, you got your certified financial planner credentials. That was not until after I wrote the book. My book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, which came out in 2016, right. was a journalism book. I interviewed people. Right. And then I reported information and facts. Right. I was not the expert. Other people were the expert. However, when I went and did speaking engagements, as the book came out, right. people perceived me as the expert because I had written this book, but in fact... This was not my knowledge, and I was not really a, I was a journalist, and most of my journalism at Reuters was macroeconomic trends. It was mm -hmm. earnings reports. It was Fed meetings. I mean, I tried to put together a real Paul, and all I talked about was the Fed. <laughs> and here's the craziest thing, Paul. Thrilling stuff. Most of my career at Reuters, the yeah. Fed did nothing mm. the entire time. All through it's the Greenspan years. One report after another of me going, the Fed is holding steady. Right. The Fed is expected to hold steady. Data shows economists are betting the Fed will hold steady. Mm. They did nothing. None of the excitement we have now. Right. Now there's drama everywhere. Yes. So it was a lot of that. So I really hadn't been a personal finance journalist. I'd been a business news and stock market journalist. So I didn't know this stuff. So I decided that I better learn it. And so, yes, I did become a CFP in November of 2017. So that's very recent. Right. 
What is a financial grown-up? Financial grown-up is someone that's proactively taking control of the financial decisions. Definitely, you can make plenty of mistakes, but it's basically paying attention and owning it as an adult. That is your problem. Whatever you're doing wrong, it's your problem. You got to fix it. And the format of the book is that you ask very prominent people what their financial grown-up moment was. What is your financial grown-up moment? I have so many, but I think for me, and I, I'll change this answer every time someone asks it to me. <laughs> I do. But in this moment, my financial grown-up moment was probably my first paycheck at CNBC. Yeah. That was such a realization, even just down to what was in it, because they take a lot of taxes out, Paul. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a big realization that, wow, when you're a grown-up, you get this paycheck, which is awesome. And it seemed really big at the time. Like I thought I was overpaid because I'd done all these free internships. Yeah. So this was so much money, even though it really wasn't. And seeing how that grown-up money system works, just going through it line by line. You know, what is FICA? What is what yeah. is all these things? What's happening here? You know, what is they insisted? And thankfully they did that I do the 401k. Mm -hmm. That was the best thing ever. Right. I still have that money because nice. I'm not 70 and a half. So this is all good stuff, but just understanding that moment where, wow, I could and will be soon paying my own bills. I was still living at home, yeah. as you've pointed out, was a big grown-up moment. No, I, I just think. knew you were near Fort Lee. That's where yeah. CNBC was headquartered. Totally. That's I went to school down the road. Yeah, I went to school in Englewood, so yeah. That's great. So I, my buddy Rick tells a story. Of, uh, the first time his daughter got a paycheck, she called him and was like, what the fuck is FICA? That just happened with my stepdaughter. She had a fit when she got her first paycheck and she has a really good job that pays really well because she's a cybersecurity person. Right, good for her. Oh yeah, she's great. But she had a meltdown over Welcome this first paycheck. Yeah, because oh. she's saving to buy an apartment because uh -huh. she travels for work. So she you know, she lives at home because she's not at home. She actually resides at the Ritz-Carlton. So, so wait, yeah. what? Well, because they travel. These consultants uh -huh. oh, travel. Right, so right. she lives during the week at, the at these hotels. Well, whatever. What's wrong with a know. Hilton or a Westin? She does that God too. Sake. Whatever whatever the plan will pay for. Uh -huh. But most recently she was residing there and, you know, she gets all these corporate meals. Yeah. I think I she's should, the smart one. My dad's probably really proud of her. I should study right? cybersecurity. Yeah. There goes all that college idealism once you see your first paycheck and all the totally. taxes that are drawn out of it. Okay. So implicit in the title if you want to coach people into being or encourage them to be a financial grown up, it's implicit there is that many of us have a tendency to act like financial babies. So what does that look like? Because we can. Yeah. Because we can and why not? But it does eventually catch up with us. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Or maybe we don't care. Right. I mean, that's the truth. We have all this controversy. We talk about lattes. And by the way, I did get to meet and have now I'm friends with David Bach, the latte factor guy, mm -hmm. through the book because I cited him and then I ended up meeting him, which was fun. But we, we obsess about all these crazy things that in the end don't really matter. Like what? So we'll talk about don't do something until you have the right amount of money to do it. But in the end, we should do it at the right time and find the money. For example. So, so for example, recently this came up at a Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway meeting. A young man asked him about how to basically delay delayed gratification. But how do you put off things that you want in order mm. to save for them? And the answer came back actually that maybe you don't, maybe you compromise. So for example, instead of saving for 15 years to afford the perfect seven day trip to Disneyland, but then your kid is grown, Paul, right? <laughs> right? Maybe you save a reasonable amount to be able to afford a two day trip or a three day trip right. and you don't stay at the best place, but you make it happen at the right time in your life. Things like that. And even with things that are much more mundane, the truth is if your kids are growing up and they need orthodonture, sometimes you're going to have to find a way to pay for that before you have the money. Yes. So it's not always realistic to have these strict rules that don't ever spend money that you don't have. Mm -hmm. Of course you shouldn't, mm -hmm. but we're all going to. So a lot of being a financial grown-up is just owning that and figuring out a way to muddle through the best we can. Well, at a certain point, I mean, that just gets to be compound and say, well, I've got five kids that need orthodonture. And by the way, I want to take them all to Disney World. And by the way, I also want them to all have new bikes. And like at a certain point, don't financial grown-ups right? say, I can't have everything that I Absolutely, want? Absolutely, but you could also work through that, right? Mm -hmm. So the orthodonture, you could maybe go and say, can I go to the local dental school, tell them my situation, and say, do you have you know extremely advanced students right. that can help me out, at least with the more minor things, right? You can go to Disney and say, can I go camping at Disney? Mm -hmm. Can I drive there instead of taking a plane? Mm -hmm. What can I do, right? right? And what was the third example? Bikes. I'm sure there's plenty of places you can buy a used bike and right. learn to fix it up. There's sure. so much information on the internet. So I would actually say there's, I'm going to fight you on that. I think there's creative solutions to so many things. Not everything, 
So, of course not. You can't necessarily go yachting with the five kids. So if you have an ugly kid, don't splurge on orthodonture for that kid. So is that what I'm... No, okay. That's not what you're hearing. You're not laughing, All children, all children be, are beautiful. All children, sure they all are. All children are beautiful, Sure Paul. they are. <laughs> okay, so now in your book, you interview many prominent executives and yes. well-known Are you going to go people. through who's the best looking executive in my book? Uh, I'm going to go with Tony Robbins. That guy is damn handsome. His teeth. <laughs> he makes Tim Armstrong look like a snaggletooth freak. But in your book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, you are asking prominent people for financial advice. And I open the first page. And what is it? Who's the person? Ivanka Trump. How did that play? This book came out three years ago. How'd that play politically? Did you get pushback on that? It did not play well. No. There are pieces written about how well it did not play. Really? Oh, yes. You can read the New York Post. There's a whole article about the uh, pushback uh, (laughs) about Ivanka. And look, this is what it is. It's always a risk when you write a book and you put people in it that are not you. And mm-hmm. even something could happen to yourself, of right, course. Right. So We're all just a few tweets away from being we are, persona non grata. You never know. So, look, I was chatting with a, a mom, friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Our kids were in a class. Maybe it was soccer. I forget what it was. And I told her I had this crazy idea for a book. Mm-hmm. I was going to get really famous high achievers, generally in the business community, but I had Drew Barrymore and there were some actors, things like that, but generally business people to who share. Went to, who went to Penn. Yeah. To Drew Barrymore went to Penn? No. Ivanka. Uh, Ivanka did. Yeah. Yes. But not at the same time as me. I did not know her there. So I had this crazy idea, which by the way, everyone said I would never pull off, that I was going to get really famous people to share personal money stories. Right. So not money stories related to their company or things that they were promoting personal stories from their childhood, generally things that were coming from a vulnerable space yes. in many cases. Yes. I mean, we did have some intimate moments with some people that said some really, I was shocked that they said the things they said, but okay. And she actually believed in me, this mutual friend. And she had a number of people that she had ideas about. And I said to her, the one caveat is no one political. Because she did <laughs> she did know Chelsea Clinton. Sure. This is a true story. So she did know Chelsea Clinton. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, because Hillary's going to run for office. And I don't want any politics. And yes. people have already suggested yes. this senator and this congresswoman and so on. And I don't want it to alienate anyone because it's about money. We said no to that. So she wrote to a bunch of different people. Shakira said no, just so you know. Oh, Maybe man. I'll get it for the next book. Mm-hmm. And... She knew Ivanka through, I guess, through mom circles, basically, Mm -hmm, mm because Ivanka was a mom in New York City. Yes. With kids just like all of us. Sure. And she wrote to Ivanka. I got a letter back that I truly believe was from her personal email address, lovely email, saying, if you're a friend of this mutual friends, I'm happy to help you. What can I do? And I explained the concept of the book. Mm -hmm. And she wrote back with her contribution. And her team followed up with photos, everything we asked for. She never asked for anything tied to my job at Reuters and the book was separate from Reuters mm-hmm. completely. Yes. Um, I worked with the ethics people at Reuters. Everything was above board with them. She was nothing but gracious. She shared a great story, yes. which I stand by. I think the story makes a wonderful point. It was basically Tell the about, story. Tell the story real quick. The yeah. story was basically, I don't want to spoil it. People want to read it in the book. Oh, well, you, well then but don't tell it. in essence, it basically showed how her mother, Donald was not in the story. It was between her and her mother. Correct. They were traveling and her mother put herself in first class and she <laughs> had Ivanka sit in economy class because Ivanka hadn't earned it and she was lucky to be going on the trip at all. Yes. That was the heart of it. And it was basically work for your own money. Yeah. You know, we'll take you along to some degree, right. but you have to make it on your own. And I think that's actually a great story. It's interesting. I, <laughs> I hear often people say like, if you can afford a first class ticket, should you take your kid in first class? And Judd Apatow talks about, you know, how he grew up with very little money. And, you know, today he wants to sit in business class when he travels with his family and he's not going to put his girls in the back. And so it's like, he tries to talk to them about it, but that's just one thing he's not willing to negotiate on. Ivana Trump put Ivanka in economy class. It's kind of a good story. There you go. It's nice It's to a know. great story. I think yeah. it was a great story. And I'll be honest with you. First of all, this story was gathered in 2014. Yes. That's when this book, she was one of the first people to say yes. And because of her, many other people did say yes. So sometimes when people don't know what's going on with the book, but when you say, well, Ivanka Trump is involved, you might say Tony Robbins involved, people say, oh, I want to be involved. Right. And so she was a tremendous help in that way. And I'm forever appreciative of that. She didn't know me. I've never met her in person. Right. So it was a wonderful thing that she did. This was two years before her father even ran for president. Yes. We had no idea that he would win. And so it's kind Neither of strange he, that this became a thing. <laughs> this, yeah, this, so it became a strange thing. But I do think that that story was a great lead story to the book because it set the stage for the fact that no matter where your starting line is, you still need to learn to be a financial grown-up. Yeah. It's not your money. You need to make it on your own to a large degree. Parental help is fine. 
But for the day-to-day life, you got to do something productive. And I think that people may disagree with her politics. They don't, we don't, first, first of all, we don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. At least I don't. No. I don't know her. So I have no idea what's going on. Right. But she's productive. You got to give her that. She is not sitting around, you know, whatever, just kind of being rich. She well, seems to be productive, at least from what I can tell. She's doing something. She's doing something. I, she's doing something. I don't know if it's productive or we not. We have no idea. We don't know if she's it's productive busy. or counterproductive. Well, she's busy. She's busy. She's busy. As my friend Jake used to say, don't confuse motion with action, but she's busy. We'll leave it there. I don't know. And it's and she was, I, I'll acknowledge, she's very gracious to do that for you. And it's a completely apolitical book, unless you believe that being responsible with your money is a political issue and I don't. What else did you learn from the book? What, like, If you were to point to any other story in the book, which one would it be? Just because someone works in finance and makes a lot of money doesn't mean that they are responsible with their money. One of the mm. stories that really struck me, and she has told the story publicly in different versions, but she told it in a very candid graphic version for my book was Sally Krawcheck, who talks about her first marriage ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you read that part? I did, yeah. What'd you think? Well, I think it's, uh, it was, she made herself very vulnerable to the benefit of your reader. And I think it's one of those things that keeps coming up, especially with women, is that 99% of the time with women is you've got to be in control. You have to know where the money is. You have to have your own money because you cannot, you got to have some walk away money. You got yeah. to, and you can't put your financial future in somebody else's hands. Yes. Her marriage ended unexpectedly and she did not. Graphically. Graphically. It's very graphic in the book. The book not as, has, I would have liked the it book to be is a not for children. The book is definitely not for children. There's some graphic moments in there. So she was very candid and very generous again to share the story. Yeah. I met her actually after the book came out. Mm-hmm. I moderated a panel that she was on. Yeah. But so again, when she contributed to this book, it was just being gracious. And you know, we had mutual friends that made the introduction. And there was a lot of that. So another theme is that people are really giving and supportive when you start new projects. And uh, the support for this book was surprisingly wonderful. I had the same experience starting this podcast. People who had no reason to put faith in me did so, uh, including Ron Liebert, the New York Times, Dr. Drew, Jessica Ma. And I appreciate that so much. Now I get to have so many different people that I call up and they go, oh, you had Dr. Drew and Ron Lieber on? Sure, I'll do it. They don't know who the hell I am. Anyway, so let's talk about some of the lessons. You talk a lot about spending in the book. What's something you have bought in your life that you regret? A lot of bad fashion. Bad fashion. (laughs) Bad fashion. I tend to buy things on sale. I have a really hard time paying retail. Yeah. I don't know if I ever have. I really, it's really hard. Yeah. Because you know, I worked in a department store in high school. And so I saw how much markup there is. Yeah. And I know how much they make even when it is marked down. Yeah. And so I really have a hard time. And I've bought, I've made a lot of mistakes in the bargain bin. So Gene Chatsky said that same thing. I know. And you know, Gene Chatsky had it. Okay. So I'm friendly with Gene. She's Mm -hmm. been a huge mentor. In fact, she endorsed the book. If you look at the back of it. And I try to do that. She had a retail challenge where if you, for a certain amount of time, you would only pay retail and therefore you would only buy things that you really wanted. Right. And you, maybe if you didn't want to buy it the first time, you'd come back. But if it was marked down, you had to only pay retail and therefore be very selective in what you bought. And right. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I just saw her, you know, I just saw her last week. I should follow up and see if she did it for a while. I don't think it lasted indefinitely, but I did try to take Gene Chatsky's retail challenge and failed spectacularly. I think there should be a mandatory 48 hour waiting period for any apparel purchase over, uh, let's call it $200. If you really want it, if you really, if it's going to work for you, if you're still thinking about it 48 hours later, go back and buy it. Yes. And also, if it's online, you should also put it in your cart and wait because they'll often send you a discount coupon. You know, the cookies will follow you. That's right. They do That's follow my, you online. I've heard there. that. I've heard that. All right. What's your biggest extravagance? Oh, gosh. I'm so cheap sometimes. We were planning a train trip and I couldn't even bother with the Acela. I had to take like not even the I took the cheapest, cheapest, cheapest. And my, my husband got mad at me because it's a much longer train ride. But I just <laughs> couldn't do it. Um, I would probably say the day-to-day things like, you know, going out with friends and Mm. dinners. I don't go to extravagant dinners, but I really don't ever want to say no to somebody just because there's going to be a meal check. So maybe it's just social life in New York City. Yeah. Things like that. that It does add up. But I also think that there's something to be said for seeing people in person and it's hard to make happen. I love that we're doing this podcast in person and you you made the effort to come to my workspace here in New York City to do this in person. And I think... Anything you can do in person, connecting with people, even if you spend a little to go to dinner or do something that may cost a little money is, I guess it's not really an extravagance, but I think it's worth it. 
You know what you said about the Acela before? It violates one of the tenets in your book. I can't remember who said it, but basically don't sacrifice time for money because the time yeah. is far more. Well, the, it's, it's only 45 minutes, really. We, right. This was a whole thing. And I took, I'll tell you. So <laughs> Let's we went bring to this, up an argument you've yeah, had with we your went to, we went to, I went to FinCon, which is in DC. So I took the train, which uh-huh. I rarely take from New York to DC and back. And I took the Acela. I did it based on times that I could leave. Mm-hmm. Took the Acela down, took the cheapest. So the Acela down was 130. Not that I'm obviously obsessive about this. It was 130. Coming back, it was 50. Right, on the regular, right. and there really was no material difference. Of course not. Right. So I feel that I should not pay triple for no material difference. It was just a little bit longer. Was it supply and demand? You just buy tickets later, or is it just different? Coach I bought no. I bought them both at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was just that I left a little bit late because I it was uh, my son's first day at school. Right. So I needed to get to the conference faster. So mm-hmm. in that time, I was paying up for time because there was a specific need. Yes. And if there is not a specific need, then you don't. And so it was an interesting experiment because I saw that. It wasn't a waste of money because, as you say, time was of essence. Yes. But the experience of the ride was really not much nicer on the mm, Acela. Mm. I don't know what's up with that. They should make it fancier. I don't know. Right? I don't know. I feel the Acela should be fancier. Like, I, first class on an airplane is fancier, right? Arguably. For, for sure. No, they give oh, it's you fancier. It's, it's you fancier. Mean, you it's feel more special. than coach. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you feel more special. Yes. You get early. There's nothing that special about the Acela. Versus the regular train. From my experience, maybe I did not experience it properly. Maybe there's things I don't know. Maybe you have a problem with savoring. Maybe. you think that's the problem? Maybe. All right. What's a category of spending where you refuse to scrimp? Kids. Kids. Spending on kids. Yeah. I'm a sucker. For example. Classes for kids, camps for kids, things like that. Yes. Yeah. I've noticed they add up. They do add up. And it's interesting because my son, there was two weeks before he went to sleepaway camp and his school had a camp that you could go to from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And he saw the check I was writing Mm. and he was mortified. Really? That this is what I was paying for four hours a day, five days a week, two weeks. How old's your son? This he one? was 11 at the time. Okay. Now he's 12. Mm-hmm. And he was upset and he convinced me he didn't want to do it at all. He's like, mom, I can chill at home. I can play video games. We're good. Right. He offered to sacrifice and play Xbox instead of going to camp. We, how about we take that money and turn it into Legos instead? <laughs> exactly. We, I did one week. We did one week of camp, but he felt that the amount that we spend as parents on our children for these kind of camps mm. and enrichment programs mm-hmm. is really excessive. And I would agree, but I'm definitely a sucker for it. And I will, well, I wouldn't say sucker. I say I, I do it. Where do you think it becomes too much? Are we over-programming our kids? Are we overspending on camps and coaches and all that kind of stuff? And if, I don't have an answer to this question. I see how much it goes out the door and you go, well, would I regret not spending it 10 years from now if I didn't? Buy my daughter music lessons or a tutor for for reading? Yeah, it's really hard. I think that you have to pay attention to your kid's interest and their actual skills. What makes me sad is when people pay a lot of money for something their children are indifferent about or that they really don't have the skill set for as they get older. It's one thing to try many things when they're younger. Mm -hmm. But as they get older, if you really don't see true joy in what they're doing and you don't see true promise, if it's, for example, a sport that you're not only paying money for, but a lot of these sports take a lot of time and energy from your family. Yes. You have to be mindful of that and sometimes make a choice not to do things. Yeah. You just told me I had to pay attention. That's going to be hard. Mm. Now we're talking about parenting. What trade-offs have you made as a career oriented parent? I saw in your book that you passed up a pretty juicy interview Steve Palmer, is that what you're talking about? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I did eventually interview him, though. Oh, you did? I did, eventually. And actually more than once. Um, And we talked about Xbox. How ironic. But off camera. There's always the chit-chat before the actual interview. So when I had my son, Reuters was very generous. They said I could come back three days a week or four days a week, whatever I wanted. Could not have been more supportive. And I chose four days a week because benefits. Mm -hmm. If I did four days a week, I still had benefits. And... I had someone that came in and worked for me on Fridays, but I had to stick to that. If you start coming in selectively for the Fridays where something really good is happening, then you've crossed that line and Mm -hmm. they're going to ask you to come in on Fridays Mm -hmm. when they want you to. So I really had to stick to that and I did miss out on some opportunities, but it's a two way street. If you ask your employer to respect the fact that you are not working on a certain day, you need to not work on that day and not confuse everybody. Yeah. So that was hard. So I did miss out on that. I missed out on a lot of travel because I also asked them not to give me travel unless they really needed to. I said, if someone else really wants this trip, let them have it. If you need me, I'll go. But if someone's really wants to go 
to this conference and cover it, that's okay. So when you do that, you can't then jump in and say, oh, except for I meant that, that conference, that one I want. Yeah, yeah, you can't picking. do that. You can't, you gotta be cool with what you decide and realize that they're accommodating you. You need to abide by what you said if yeah. you want them to as well. What are some ways that parents can make sure their kids are financially grown up? I am working on that right now. That is the subject of my new book, Raising Financial Grownups, oh, which yeah? is in progress. Uh-huh. Hopefully it'll be out in a year or so-ish, year-ish. Do you hear that, publishers? <laughs> we'll be shopping it soon. Actually, we're finishing up the proposal. I've gotten tremendous early response on it because I am struggling with that, Paul, to be honest yeah. with you. That is something... Right now, I mentioned my amazing stepdaughter has a great job. Mm -hmm. She is saving very hard for a down payment to buy her own apartment because for us, and I know there's a big debate about rent versus own these days, and a lot of younger people, for all good reasons, want to always rent. She wants to own, Mm. and we support that. I did that when I was 23. I talk about that in the book. I owned a very small apartment. She wants to own, and so she's living at home, and we want her to save as much money as possible So how does that translate to asking her, for example, to pay for her own phone? Mm. Because we can very easily keep her on the family plan. doesn't cost us that much. Right. Or we can say, on principle, you're going to pay your own phone bill. Right. But that's taking money away from her achieving a really good goal. Mm -hmm. We want her Mm -hmm. to achieve these goals. So I'm struggling with it. So I'm interviewing experts, and hopefully I'll come up with some solutions for people, including myself. You talk about generational differences about renting versus owning. We're both Gen Xers. Mm -hmm. When I grew up, my aspiration was big house, cool cars. It seems like the next generation has different aspirations. What do you see in your kids? I think you're exactly on target. I hate to be so agreeable with you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I'm like, right. Yes, good point. I hate being right all the time. Yeah, or maybe that's just media training. Like, always agree with the host. Yeah, hmm, there you go. What oh, am wow. I really doing, Paul? I should Paul? take media training. You should. Maybe that's a new business line for me. So My parents should have given me media training when I was 11. No, then you would, you would be robotic. You wouldn't be nearly as fun and as funny. I agree. So I think that younger people are reexamining many things that we took for granted, and it's a good thing. We always assumed, for example, that if you bought a house, it would always go up in value. Right. And then we all got burned in the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. So we have been proven wrong, Paul, right. about many things. So it's great, number one, that they are at least questioning so many things that Gen Xers took for granted. Right. There's a lot of downsides to owning. You don't have the flexibility to move, for example, as we learned in the downturn. Because if you own a home and you get a job in another city and you can't flip that house, you sometimes really can't afford to move so easily. Of course, you can rent it. There's all kinds of variables, but it just makes it harder. It's an illiquid asset. It's an illiquid asset. And the idea that it will automatically go up in value, not so. Many people, not only that, they put so much money renovating and upgrading their houses that it becomes too expensive for that market. You really don't want to be the most expensive. I'm getting nerdy here now. You don't really want to be the most expensive house on your street. It's hard to sell that house. It's too fancy for that market. So it's good that they're questioning it. I love that they're questioning our car culture. (laughs) My stepchildren, granted we're in the city, less than zero interest in ever driving. I'm trying to get them interested at all. Yes. So far- Do they have driver's licenses? (laughs) No. No interest. Literally no interest interest. Hilarious. We've gotten my stepdaughter who did go to school in the Midwest did get a permit. I don't know if she's ever actually been behind a wheel. Oh, like that's she got funny. she took a test. Uh-huh. Zero interest. Really no interest. And I don't know how she would get it now because she's in urban areas. It's very hard to learn to drive in Manhattan. Right. Where she effectively lives, even though she travels a lot for work. And my stepson goes to school in New York City in college and has not expressed any interest in learning to drive. I mean, for them, why bother? You can take an Uber. Right. Why have the overhead of owning a car, insurance, where you're going to park it, and then you have to be the designated driver? Who wants to be that? Nobody. Why would you drive? I think that, yeah, another eight or 10 years and we'll be done with that completely with self-driving and all that stuff. Supposedly. We'll see. Supposedly. We'll see. Let's go back to your career. You spent many years doing high-profile, on-air work, and you've transitioned. You're very busy. Tell me how you've kind of handled the the twists and turns that your career has handed you. And so many twists and turns. I decided about, well, really 2014, let's say, mm-hmm. that journalism was changing. And I needed to get ahead of the curve and figure out what I was going to do. Because we were being asked to do more and more. And I was concerned about the quality mm-hmm. and the resources. Mm-hmm. Because... No longer was I 
just on air talent doing my report and focusing on what I wanted to communicate editorially. We're getting very serious here. But I was also being asked to edit all my own stuff. Right. No longer was there an engineer recording me when I would do the vocals for a piece. I would have to do it at my desk with a microphone hooked up to the computer. Yep. Everything was on my own. It was my kind of one man band. The, my engineer has the day off. Otherwise, he'd be here right Exactly. Now. Well, I know your team is, is coming. Vast team, yes. And the news was becoming commoditized. We've talked about robots are writing the news now. Yeah. So I felt that I had to do something. And I also felt that I had to do something to separate myself from the brands I had worked with. I'd worked at CNN, CNBC. Now I was at Reuters. And what was going to be my identity separate from those entities? Because what if I had lost my job, for example? Right. Who was I? I was just unemployed. I was a formerly. Yes. But then what? And so I wanted to create something that was going to be my own. And I originally wanted to do a documentary. And I was talked out of it because it didn't seem to have the same legs as a book, right. I'd say. So my agent convinced me to do a book. If you want to get rich, write a book, kids. That's what. That's well, you, won't, you won't get rich writing a book, but you will get speaking engagements yes. and other opportunities that flow from the right. book, more so than the documentary. Let's yeah. just say that. What did you want the documentary to be about? The same thing. Same thing. I wanted Financial to interview well-known, successful people about their money stories. Yes. Yeah. And so because I think it brings it to a relatable level. When you see people that are so successful, but then you understand, okay, Jim Kramer was robbed, lost all his stuff, and was living in his car, living in his getting, drunk every, yeah, right. getting drunk every night. Like That's kind of <laughs> relatable, right? I believe and that. And look where Jim Kramer is now. He's yeah. amazing. So I wanted Booyah! those relatable stories. Exactly. So I did the book instead, and it was a three-year exit plan from Reuters. It right. took me three, and that was the plan. Mm-hmm three years because I did not want to leave until after the book came out. So the book came out in October of 2016, right in time for the election, my non-political book. Right. And then I left Reuters in February of 2017. Nice. What does your day-to-day look like today? You've got a couple different products you're working on. I'm working on improving my time management skills, number one. <laughs> a little too much. Yes. So I had the book. I did a lot of speaking. And then unexpectedly, I fell into doing... Working with brands, basically, doing marketing content, also known as sponsored content. Right. I've worked with several very big brands, and the work that I've done with them has been so high quality. I'm so proud of it. Yep. Wonderful people. Wonderful, to be honest with you, budgets for production that we say, don't see in th- editorial. Th- there's money for budgets on the corporate there's side. There's a lot of money for beautiful production. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I you know when I would Hilarious. cover a convention with any of these news organizations, it was me and a cameraman. Right. Until the last couple of years, also a producer. Right. So I would say it was a, a crew of three until the, as it was getting dwindled down. This, I mean, oh my goodness, Paul. I mean, the money for good use, though. It's all well spent. It's, it looks so wonderful. Right. They do such a good job. I mean, I think they had five lighting guys on this one thing. Just lighting. We moved a set from convention to convention, and they moved it in from across the country. It was so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it had 10 monitors. It had custom-made cushions. It was so beautiful and so well cushions. done. Co- like like pillows that had the uh-huh. logos oh, and cool. the lighting. Mm-hmm. And it was just so well done that I, I just I have so much respect for the people that do it. I really do. And I think that they were very concerned that it not look like an ad in any way. So they don't promote themselves. They just deliver really solid content relevant to their industry. Yes. And I've really enjoyed that. So that's been an, an unexpected income stream that has allowed me to do my passion projects like my financial grown-up podcast. I now have a second podcast, which is actually with a partner named Joe Salcihai. He is also Stacking he's, Benjamin's host. He's a funny you dude. Know. I do. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He's awesome. Yeah. And that podcast, Money with Friends, is actually already doing better than Financial Grown Up. Well, that's sadly. great. And uh, it has that's, a big, that's, it a has, strong, that's going to be a strong moneymaker. That's ha- actually an income stream there. That's awesome. It yeah. has a strong big brother in Stacking Benjamins. It definitely has a, a lot of help that's from cool. Stacking Benjamins, which is an awesome show everyone should also check out. So I have two podcasts now, mm-hmm. and I'm working on my next book. What motivates you? What do you want to accomplish in the next 10 years? The reaction from other people is what motivates me. I just came back from FinCon and so many people came to me. That's a FinCon is a convention focus, a conference focused on independent money related content creators. And so many people came there. They weren't even content creators. They come just to see us and they would come up to me and they want to take a selfie with me, Paul. Wow. And they tell me how much they love my podcast. They love my book. Right. They've seen me on Money with Friends because we taped that on video. Uh-huh. 
And it was awesome to see that it, this sounds so hokey, but you're actually touching people's lives. Yeah. And they tell me how they got out of debt and how I motivated them, whatever it may be. I'm like, you're probably a better grown up than I am in many right. cases. But the love you get from other people, this is so cheesy, but it's really true. It's like Dragon Con for financial podcast nerds. Yeah, you're something all, like that. You're all welcome to uh, take a selfie with me next time when I go. Don't you feel good, though, when someone recognizes you and comes up to you? I was on stage a few weeks ago, and somebody who I didn't know said, I love your podcast. And I was like, what? That was, was there crazy. There are real people out there, there listening are real to people this on call. the other side. Of, hello, real people. There thank are you real for, people. Thank you for staying tuned. I am interested to see who finds it interesting. It's not like I have thousands of people emailing me, but the people who are saying things about the podcast to me are saying exactly what I would have them say. Which is what? That it means something to them, that they're getting something out of the conversations, that they learn something from the conversations. And that to me is, that's what I want to hear. And, you know, hopefully they're, they find it enjoyable and funny and not, you know, like reading uh, in old English or something, but <laughs> you know, that, it, that they're having fun listening to it and, and that the guests I'm getting, and I'm very proud of the guests I'm getting, have been additive to their life in some tiny way. In big ways, Paul, you're making a huge difference. Well, we'll we'll see, but and yeah, but yeah, they're just that it's contributing some small thing to the culture, to the lives of the people that are listening. Yeah, and it's important, I think, to also laugh at ourselves and have a sense of humor because we all make really dumb money mistakes. I mean, I've made them all. I'm sure you've made some. I've and made a few. It is what it is. I mean, I have an episode coming up about how I messed up my phone bill. I mean, I was just paying ridiculous <laughs> numbers. Oh my goodness, I didn't understand. They said if you automate your payments you get $10 off a month, right? So right. I thought I, I did. My payments were automated. Except apparently, and this is kind of their fault because I think they didn't explain it properly. Right. But apparently if you automate it and put it in your credit card, which would be the smart choice because you get points, right? that doesn't count. You have to automate it through like checking. Oh, that's much bullshit. I know. I thought so. Thank you for taking my side. But I discovered that. So those are dumb things. I was paying $10 extra. I mean, that's almost two lattes here in New York, right? Yeah. My gas bill recently, I had a fixed plan for however long. And then I never, maybe they emailed me and it went to junk mail or something like that. And it went from, I can't even remember. I was paying like five times the, what's the unit of measurement for gas? A butte. I don't know. I don't live in the suburbs. Whatever so I don't was, deal with that. Whatever it was, it was like five times the market thing. I got some giant bill. Anyway, I switched providers. Uh, anyway, hey, <laughs> let's talk. Let's let's get deep for a second. Today is 9-11. We're, this will come out in a couple of weeks, but today's 9-11. How have you lived your life or managed your career differently since 9-11? Well, first of all, 9-11, I mean, first of all, I lost people that I, no one in my immediate family, but I did lose a lot of people that I had known through my work at CNBC and CNN that were in you know the World Trade Center. I remember being down there on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange mm. when it happened and not understanding what happened. We thought a little helicopter had a, a, like a personal accident and hit the building. And, and you're just as, a couple of blocks away at this time. I was in the New York Stock Exchange getting ready to do wow. my morning report to London for mm -hmm. Reuters. And as the reality of it unfolded, I, I just, there's nothing, it was just a day, I mean, there's nothing to say. I, I don't even know. On a personal level, I just, I'm glad that I'm safe. I remember walking up the island of Manhattan, just walking north and not knowing where was safe. Right. We did not know what was happening. None of our phones were working. There was no communication. I remember walking far around Grand Central because I assumed that would be a target. Mm -hmm. I remember leaving, by the way, I left the... New York Stock Exchange, even though we were given instructions not to leave because I was convinced that was a target. Right. That it was going to be bombed. I yeah. thought I thought New York City was being bombed. I don't know what you thought. We just had no information. And when you are in an information vacuum like that, you feel very alone, very scared. Mm. You don't know where your family and friends are. And you don't know if the world is ending. So I think we're all just grateful to have our friends and the people, our family, the people that we care about that are with us and to appreciate it. And it's hard. It's 18 years it's 18 years and our children don't know this. Mm -hmm. They don't know a world without that having happened, but I don't know that they fully understand the magnitude of it as much as we do. I remember I had gotten up to my father's apartment in the West 60s and looking south and seeing the last tower to go down. Mm -hmm. I, there's just nothing like it. It was, it was just the worst day. It was the worst day. Yeah. Do you try to keep the brevity of life in mind and how you manage your days in your career? So my mother passed away at age 62. Wow. 
And as I get closer to that, I want to say I was 35 mm. from leukemia. So it was not quick. It was, we, we knew there was, it was unlikely that she would live. You know, obviously that day is very shocking when it really happens, but it was not an accident where it's a sudden shock. I mean, there was, you know, a long time in hospitals and ICUs and things like that. And I do think about that. And that's had me, it's been, I have a hard time spending money as people already know. One of the things that has suffered that I now am coming to regret somewhat is spending on, and this is so cliche with the millennials, but spending on experiences like travel. Right. Because we've gone through a tough time with my husband and I raising three kids in New York City, which was not intentional. We ended up having his kids unexpectedly, so it wasn't sort of factored in when we made the decision to live here. Mm-hmm. And so we do, while we do very well, we haven't spent huge money on travel because we pay for three children. And I've come to the point of having to make it happen. So because life is too short. And my sister had a talking to um, with me about a year and a half ago because I was hemming and hawing about taking a trip. Mm. And she said, if you look at your bank account, I know your day-to-day cash and blah, blah, blah. But overall, you're fine. You're fine. You've been doing the 401k since your first job. Mm-hmm. You're going to be fine. You need to do some trips. You need to do what, you know, not go crazy, but you need to do what's right for you. And look, I went on a trip to Iceland with my husband and my son, my now 12-year-old. We went for four days. We didn't mm-hmm. go for two weeks. We went right. for four days. But that trip was really the trip of a lifetime. Yeah. And I can tell you, my husband, and we didn't we didn't skimp. We had a private tour guide. We right. went into the volcano yeah. in the four-wheel drive vehicle that had the special tires and everything. We did everything for four days. They talk about the trip. I mean, that trip was so special. It was the coolest place ever. Highly recommend Iceland. Yep. But I'm so glad we did it. And it was it was really expensive for four days. It was right. crazy money. <laughs> I never, you talk about crazy money. This My husband to this day, I made a decision. I said, I will never tell you what that trip costs. Right. Because he would be so mortified. Yeah. Those four days. Travel but adds I'm glad up. we did it. Yeah. I'm glad we did it. And, you know, another way, for example, to people to make these things happen is we only went with that one child, but we've done other trips with other children. Yep. So not every child, and they're different ages. You know, I've got 22, 19, and 12. They don't all want the same trip. So you can go one parent with one child yeah. to the tri- to the place that kid really wants to go. All five of you don't have to go. And that's yeah. a great way to make everyone happier and spend the money in the right ways. Travel is one of those things where it's like, I don't regret any of the travel that I've ever done, but you look at the numbers and it's like, holy God, that's expensive. There's no top end to it. I mean, like it's oh, basically no. you can spend as much as you no. can come I up with. I did turn down the helicopter trip though in Iceland, yeah, the yeah. helicopter tour of Iceland. I did turn down, but we did some pretty cool stuff and it was awesome. Related, before we wrap up, when when somebody comes to you as a financial, as somebody who is almost, a, well, you're a financial planner, but you're also sort of a financial counselor teaching people how to be a financial ground up. If I had come to you when I was 42 and said, I want to quit my job at Facebook and become a comedian, what would you have told me? I would have asked to see the numbers. <laughs> no, that's the truth. I have a friend that just asked me, she wants to quit her job to write a book. Yeah. And I said to her, no, because she doesn't have the numbers. Yeah. She doesn't have the numbers. So I think that people- You're get, a killjoy. What do you I'm mean sorry. by the, Come on. What about my dream? But you know what? It's also better. And I think you said this on the Financial Grown Up podcast. It's much easier to achieve your dream if you can pay your bills. Yes. And the truth is I wrote a book, Paul- while working full-time mm-hmm. at Reuters in a very busy job mm-hmm. with three kids at home. Right. They weren't in college yet. Three kids at home, a husband and a dog. Let's not forget Waffles, my dog. And I made it happen. So I would say do it as a side hustle, but don't quit your job so fast. There's something really good about a, a paycheck every two weeks. Yeah. Even without taxes. Yeah. When did you find time to do it? I decided that I would not work more than I was paid to. I made a tough decision. I knew I was going to leave Reuters and I never phoned it in, but I stopped working more. Mm. So instead of working a 12 hour day, right. as I was doing, I was union. I was obligated to work eight hours with an hour lunch. So I was obligated to work seven hours. Right. So instead of coming in and working 12 hours, I dropped my son off the earliest time possible. So I think it was, let's say seven thirty at school. And I didn't go to work until 11 because I had to be there till six because I had to get the final stuff out. I was in charge of my unit. So I had to close up shop basically. I had right. to do the market wrap at the end of the day and make sure everything was got to the clients. Yep. So instead of coming in, I was taking phone calls at 6 a.m. from home. I was leading morning meetings that were had London involved. So a lot of morning stuff. I just cut that, delegated it to somebody who was you know, worked for me effectively, someone who reported to me. And I did not make an announcement, by the way. I just did it. 
And if somebody asked my hours, because I was in charge of that unit, let's yep. be honest. I just said, I work 11 to six and right. nobody pushed back. Right. So I just fully did my job, but only my job. And that created a window. So let's say every day I had from about 8 a.m. I would get to a coffee shop, never made social plans. And from eight to 1030 every day, religiously, I worked on that book. So fit your dream or your artistic endeavor into your job. And if it goes well, then maybe do your thing. I also didn't quit right away, Paul. Right. I waited. Mm -hmm. I waited till I had a runway of speaking engagements and income coming right. in. Right. It's really important to not overestimate how much your side hustle is going to pay you. It may not pay you so fast. Unless you're a comedian, which pays dozens of dollars. Well, that's a different thing. Dozens. Dozens, dozens of dollars. Yes. Yes. Well, this has been really interesting, Bobby. Let's remind people where they can find out more about you. So my primary website is bobbyrebell.com. So easy. How do we spell that? B-O-B-B-I-R-E-B-E-L-L. -L. Just exactly as it sounds. Exactly as it sounds. And that will lead you to all things that I work on, including my financial grown-up podcast and Money with Friends podcast and my book and my future book and copies. You can also see Paul's episode of Financial Grown-Up there. Yeah, that one was good. Yeah. And follow good. me on social, please. What are your handles? Instagram at BobbyRebell1, the number one, on Twitter at BobbyRebell. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Bobby, for your time. I really enjoyed meeting you in person, and I appreciate your friendship to the Crazy Money Podcast. Thank you very much for all you've done for us. Hey, folks, be sure to tune in next week when my guest will be Christopher Ryan, author of the new book, Civilized to Death, which is a provocative look at our current society and the way we live, quote, unquote, in civilized society. Really interesting interview with an interesting dude. If you like what we're doing here, please take a minute to rate and or review the podcast on the app on which you listen to it. Rate the podcast is what I'm trying to say. Okay, I got to go. Mike Carano, thank you very much. Do your magic. Bye.